Well, it's lovely to be back doing a new series of Tea with Twiggy. In the break, I've been doing what I've been doing most of the year, which is um, cooking and reading and um, knitting, which I love. Um, along with Ronnie Wood, if you remember, he loves to knit too, my knitting partner. But anyway, this is a new season and I'm very happy to be kicking off with an old mate of mine, one of the best rock singers ever, lovely actor, lovely man. It is the brilliant Roger Daughtry. Well, Roger, this is a treat. I, I haven't seen you for so long. I think the last time I saw you, we bumped into each other in Chiswick High Street. Do you remember? That's correct, yes. That's about, yeah. gosh, that's about. That's probably about six or seven years ago. That, you've got a good memory, Twigs. Yeah, I, was, I think I was with Carly, my daughter, and that's it was right. just so lovely to see you. <laughs> and likewise here. Oh. How have you been through this? What There's about no, this year? What about it? I've, I've actually not, not been too bad. Um, it's kind of, you know I live on a farm and, and I've so I've got a lot of land to walk around and farming. The rhythm of the land doesn't change. Farming doesn't stop. You know it's, it's not anything you can close down. Uh, there's an old saying in farming that you live live like you you uh, you die tomorrow, but you farm like you live forever. Uh, that's true. And, actually. And that's, so it's kind of it's great because the farm guys I see them every day because we work in a in a cooperative, and it, 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 it so it hasn't been too bad. But how, what kind what kind of a farm is it? What do you have? We we I farm beef. We're in a very very uh, poor soiled part of East Sussex, which is all clay, um, mm -hmm. and I can only really grow grass. That's what we do well, and uh, so we do we rear beef. Um, we, we, we have about 300 animals wow. and, um, but it, it's a, a way of life I got into in, in the early, or the early eighties, really seriously, because I, I needed a balance in my life from the lunacy of the rock and roll world. That is amazing because, you know, well, you are the most iconic rock star from, you know, the no, rock singer. No. You are, I mean... <laughs> The the image of you in with your fringe jacket and the hair and the swinging microphone. Did you ever did you ever hurt yourself when you swung that mic? Oh, I, I have hurt myself. I have, oh, have must you? say that I've only ever hurt one other person, and that was deliberate. Oh. Uh, um, well, well, mainly because that person was a teddy boy, and it was in 1969 at the Royal Albert Hall. When there was a bit of a fracas going on down the front because we were, we were, we were on a jewel bill with Chuck Berry. Blimey. Chuck Berry's our our audience was all mods and hippies, and we were doing the first kind of performance of Tommy, and of course Chuck Berry, we Chuck Berry was supposed to be supporting us, but we we had such respect for Chuck because he, he, to us he was a god, that we said to him, look. We don't mind if you go on after us, but we, what we should do to keep the audience happy, we have to do two shows at that time, is that we'll toss up for it. On the first show, whoever wins the toss 
the first, the, you know, you, you get to yeah. choose which show that you headline and which show you support. So it worked out that we supported Chuck in the first show. His audience very happy. Our audience not so happy. <laughs> so, so come to the second show, you know, Chuck goes on, his audience very, very happy. We go on, our audience are very, very happy. But Chuck's audience were, you know, old teddy boys uh, who, who got very, very angry <laughs> having That's to listen so to this kind of rock opera. <laughs> and they, they kind of started causing this fracas down the front and, and um, it got kind of nasty. Oh. And I saw some guy in, 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 the, in the four people back in a, in a crowd that boxed in at the front all shoulder to shoulder, all their arms in the air, screaming and shouting at us to get off. Where's Chuck? And he and his arm went to, and it looked like he was throwing something. And I didn't think anything of it. I just felt something kind of clip my the top of my eyebrow. And then the next thing I know, I felt my face felt warm and very hot and sweaty. But I put my hand up and it was blood. Oh my god! And I found out later because I found what he'd thrown at me. I didn't know at the time, but it was it was one of the old-fashioned copper pennies that they clipped the edges off to make them sharp. Oh my god! And if that thing had hit me in the eye, I would have lost my eye. But anyway, this guy was still in the middle of this crowd, kind of boxed in by all these other Teds, <laughs> and I pointed at him, and I swung the mic, and he he couldn't escape. He was stuck there with his arm in the air and he just could not get away. <laughs> and I hit him smack bang in the middle of his nose. Good. <laughs> and, I, Good. And, and it serves him right. It um, bloody well but, did. Uh, yeah, I have hit myself and I've got, I've got to tell you, it does hurt. I, I often wonder that with um, big rock uh, bands and things, when they, you know, fans break through and they, you know, I always think it must have been so dangerous because... You know, those girls would get... I remember David Essex, who I knew years ago, saying that one girl broke through and ran at him with a pair of scissors to <laughs> to get a lock of hair. But, you know, if she'd have slipped... Oh, like, um, it you know, was I mean, crazy, it's crazy times. I mean, when I think back, we, we supported the Beatles at the uh, Blackpool Opera House in 1964, and we were on a show with them. And the Kinks and and oh wow and it was extraordinary. If any of those girls had got hold of any one of those guys, I don't think they would have come out alive. I really don't. <laughs> I know. I, because I at that time I not only was the singer in the band and the roadie because I had to set the gear up. Uh, <laughs> I used to drive the drive the van, and of course after the show, um, we I, I went out out of the stage door to get the van to, to load the gear up. And, of course, I'd been on stage just before the Beatles came on in this group called The High Numbers. All of a sudden, this mob leapt on me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was the most terrifying experience. They just <laughs> were ripping at me. To make things worse, the police at that time, the, the girls had broken through, heard all this screaming and me being clouted by these, these screaming girls. They started to attack me thinking I was attacking the girls. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going, no, I'm trying to get the van to put the gear in. <laughs> that is, oh my that is God. true, that is really true. But I'm telling oh. you, 
having experienced it, if any of those girls had got hold of the Beatles at that time, I doubt if they would have lived through it. I really, no, I, I really I, doubt I, it. it was I that- think I actually, I actually did go and see, I was 14 years old and me and my friend Ellen got tickets to see the Beatles at the Finsbury Park Astoria. And, uh, well, I mean, we never got, we only saw them on stage, but you couldn't hear anything because no, that, that everyone was screaming. Scream. Yeah, it was madness. But and the kind you, of faint we smell didn't of urine. care. <laughs> 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 we don't know about that, but yeah, probably. <laughs> I just remember there was, it was mainly young girls, but there was a guy sitting along the aisle from us and all he he didn't watch the show he was just staring at all these mad females screaming their heads off I don't think he could believe it (laughs) it was absolute madness but you were saying before we started recording that before Covid hit the wonderful Covid you were on tour and 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 loving it and your voice was in great shape yeah that's what was so awful about this this lockdown for me was was the fact that Prior to it, 2019, 2018, I'd been been uh, singing probably the best I've ever sung in my life because for like um, 10, 15 years, I'd had a problem going on in my vocal cords that I didn't understand. It was a, like a precancerous thing. Oh, okay. And I managed to get it fixed. And all of a sudden, my voice came back to where it used to be when I was very young, but but wow. better because I've got, got a lot of life in it now. You know, it's done a lot of living. Yeah. So I was singing so well, you know, and, and the, the music we were doing with this orchestra was my dream of how to really present Pete Townsend's music in the way I hit particularly hear it because mm-hmm. I've, I've always felt that his music is, it's not rock and roll, that's for sure. It's rock music. But it's also written in a classical manner. Uh, the chord, the chords are, they're they're all written around. It's a bit like Purcell. It's really, it, it, I can't explain it. But when you hear it with an orchestra, and the orchestrations we've had done are unlike any other orchestrations that you hear with most rock bands, which are generally things that could be played on a on a synthesizer basically on a keyboard this is percussive melodic uh jazzy it's really really interesting stuff and it makes gives the music such a dynamic it it really does make the hairs on your on the on your back stand up it's like whoa there's something going on here and so i was just having the time of my life for the first time on stage it was wonderful to be in the middle of that noise every other night was this in the uk or was this abroad? All, we did um, we did you we did only did wembley at the, the uk which we're thinking oh, only, of, he only did wembley <laughs> that's it we only did wembley stadium and we're thinking of bringing that out as a, as a live album because it is it was such a good show the orchestra oh, are so good every orchestra we played it with and we went all around america we finished up with like three nights at the hollywood bowl and every orchestra we played with and these are musicians that are playing all the classics every night of their life you know they were having so much fun playing this music their their faces and the way they played they all said this has been a dream they couldn't believe it because it like i say to you it's like a new form of classical music it's extraordinary presumably when they 
get a handle on this virus, the, you know, performing will come back again. I think I mean, the vaccines are going to have a, an enormous impact. The virus is already weakening and and on a, on a downward slope. The vaccines are only going to, going to enhance that. Have you had yours? I have. I've been I've been vaccinated. The first one. Uh, yeah, me the, too. Is, the issue becomes twigs. The issue is we've got to convince those people you know who feel they don't want it for maybe you know um yeah religious things um they're frightened of it yeah we've got we've got i mean we can't be frightened of it otherwise this thing will never go away i know and we might as well all lock ourselves in prison this is crazy i agree i mean i i, I couldn't wait to get it i have to say and i have to say if any one's out there listening who's frightened it didn't hurt i didn't have any I had a slightly sore arm like you get from the flu jab for 24 hours. Then I was absolutely fine. And now apparently just from the one, you've got, you know, 65, 70% protection. I just have to tell everyone that we we met kind of properly, properly, because about, I think, do you know, I think it's about 25, 30 years ago that we did Little Match Girl. We did a TV drama of The Little Match Girl, which is the classic fairy story, isn't it? Yeah. And um, and you played The Little Match Girl's dad and I played your girlfriend, a <laughs> musical My lady. My lovely girlfriend. Ah, yeah. And then Cliff Richard covered and it. And had a huge got, hit with it. Yeah. We just had it on the show. I sang it in the show, if you remember. That's right. And nobody ever said, oh, you, you know, you should put it out and then cliff bless him he did do a lovely version of it and it, it's been a hit every year for him you know that's right um, no it's he did a good job of it song. i had a meeting about a year and a half ago with a publisher about something that i didn't end up doing and she came with her youngest youngish assistant who was probably in her late 20s and she had long red hair and i was introduced and, and she said you don't remember me do you and i said oh god no and she said I was I was the little match girl. Ah. <laughs> and she'd grown up and left the business and was in publishing. But it wasn't that amazing. Oh. I thought, oh my goodness, I couldn't believe it. She was a big grown up person and she was such a sweet little thing. Anyway, I loved I loved doing that with you. It was great fun. It was shot in very short time, wasn't it? Yeah. Like ten yeah, days or something, fast. wasn't it? Down in Cardiff. Yeah. Was it in Cardiff? I don't even remember that. It was Cardiff, yeah. It was, was in it? Cardiff. In Cardiff. Cardiff Studios. Ooh. Anyway, the other thing, I, I must have told, I can't remember if I told you this when we worked together, but I'm going way back now to the early 60s and my sister had a boyfriend and his dad, my sister's seven years older than me, so I was about 13, she was nearly 20, and her boyfriend's dad had a, a green grocery store in Wembley and I used to go with my sister Viv at weekends you know to pop in because he's her boyfriend worked there as well and they had this little delivery boy who used to pack the boxes up at the back and everything and he always used to tease me he was a little bit older than me and his name was Keith and it was it was your Keith, Keith. it was Moon and I can remember him telling Terry my sister's then boyfriend that he was going to join a band 
And everyone in the grocery shop teased him and said, ah, I won't come to anything. It'll be a load of rubbish. And then it was like a year later. Was it I Can't Explain was the first thing, wasn't right. it? That's right, yeah. Can't Explain. Yeah. Brilliant. I loved that. Because I was a mod. You were, were you a mod? You were the mod band, weren't you, really? I was a pretend mod. I, <laughs> I would have been whatever you wanted me to be. Preach, I would have been anything to just get out That's of the factory brilliant. and play music for the rest of my life. God. I would be you? a mud, I'll be a teddy boy, I'll be a cowboy. <laughs> so did you did you learn I mean, did you come out of a musical family or did you learn no, music at no, school? No. What how Came did it how family, did it all happen? I'm always intrigued how it happens to people. We got inspired by people like Lonnie Donegan, Elvis, Johnny Cash, Everly Brothers, all those people. The noise of that music just grabbed that, that young generation. Yeah. That period of time, Britain, England, was, was, was so flattened by the war. Yeah. Our parents were so shell-shocked still by the war. That's true. They very rarely spoke to us about anything other than get up go to school. That's right. They never spoke about anything deep to us. They were shell-shocked their whole life, I think. Yeah, um, I think you're right. So we just couldn't wait to get out. And, and, and then Lonnie Donegan came along with Skiffle. And a Skiffle band was a thing that every every young kid could join. Every, anyone could scrub a washboard yeah. <laughs> with, 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 you know, things on their fingers, just thimbles on their fingers to make a noise, tap something, bang something. Anyone can make a, a bass out of a tea chest, a piece of string and a broom handle. Yeah. So it was all homemade music that we could identify with and do ourselves. You know, and every band, so many of the big bands, when you look at their history, we are exactly the same. Made our first guitars because we couldn't afford to buy them. Yeah, I read that. You know, Is that true? Yeah. You made Keith your Richard. first guitar. That's brilliant. Yeah, made, made our first guitars because we couldn't afford to buy them um, and just begged, borrowed, scrimped, just do it because you're passionate. And if you're passionate enough and you believe in yourself and you've obviously got to have some talent and you get the right breaks, and we did, we got incredibly lucky, we made it. But you have to be 110, 20% passionate about it. You can't half do it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it, you know, you've got, to, you've got to have that and you've got to have a little bit of luck and a lot of talent for it to go through. Because everyone needs a bit of luck to kick it off. Every, everyone needs a lot of luck. Yeah. Well, that's my favourite saying, you know, think lucky and be lucky. That's true. Did you know you had a voice like that, though? Because your voice is, you know, is one of the great rock voices. I know you don't like it's, saying it's, it, but it is. Which one do you want? I used to sing in the church choir when oh, I was Oh, so you knew you could sing? Six years old. No, I was a very good singer. I've got perfect pitch. So, um, and I used to sing be be the the uh the squad kind of singer in the boys brigade you know lead lead all the songs when we were at camp and things like that but um it took me a long time to develop the voice that i have now and and to do the things i can do with my voice now mm. i th- i i would have i think i would have made a good opera singer so i'd oh, gone that route yeah well you've certainly but got I didn't a big like the voice. lyrics huh? <laughs> <laughs> i just didn't like them. <laughs> And there's not enough of them. I mean, an awful lot, an awful lot of repeat lines. <laughs> That's so funny. 
one of my favourite songs of all time, period, is Giving It All Away that you sang that I think Leo Sayer wrote. He did. Oh, I, lo- I love that song your too. Your version of that just, I, every, I can still, I play it now and it breaks me up. It's, it touches your heart. And if everyone, anyone hasn't played it, please play it because it's, or get it, download it or whatever you do today. I don't know what it is about that song, but every time I play it live and I can still sing it in the same key and everything else. And it, um, but, uh, but again, I think I can sing it better today than I actually sang it on the record. But when I, when it starts up, as soon as the vocal comes in with that melody and that those lyrics, you can hear a pin drop. Yeah. This, it, that song's got something going on in it. It, it is, has. I don't know. It just touches people very, it very does. deeply. It does. It, it touches yeah. your heart and your in your inner core. You know that when yeah. a song you go and kind of go, oh, I love that song. Shall I go and get a guitar and play it? Oh for you? yes, please. Would you like that? Oh, I'd love it. All right, I'll go and get it. Hold on. It's such a great song. This is for you, Twigs, as you like that one. I paid all my dues, so I picked up my shoes, got up and walked away. Oh, I was just a boy. I didn't know how to play. Worked hard and failed Now all I can say is I threw it all away Oh, I was just a boy Giving it all away Sail away Sail away Something like that. <laughs> I love that song. It's a great song. Thank you it very much. Mm. <laughs> it is one, no, it's really one of my favourite songs ever. Absolutely gorgeous. Now, I say most of the songs you do were written by you and Pete, yeah? No, Pete's written most of the Who songs, but that was off a solo album. I did solo albums because I got bored with the time off from the Who. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he used to take years off to write which is of course. necessary. He needed the time, but for the rest of us, it was like, well, what do we do? And singers need to sing. If you don't sing, you lose yeah. it. No, you do. If you don't use it, you lose it. So um, I had I had this little guy, Leo Sayer, in my barn doing demos, and he didn't have a record contract. And I just said to him, why don't you write me some songs and I'll do a solo album? Not thinking he would. And literally 10 days later, he turned up with 10 songs. So he wow. <laughs> So I I did them, and that, that album was a huge hit, huge. Yeah, hit. absolutely. And then later he went on to you know um, be, be become a huge hit singer himself, didn't he? That's right. He had a hu- hugely successful pop career. Huge. He's a sweet man, actually. I met him a couple of times. Well, actually, we did. I've done a couple of albums over the year, and we did um, Save the Last Dance for Me together. You know that old song, you can dance. Well, why didn't you ask me to do one with you? 
I would have done it, would you? Would you? All right, well, well, let's do one. You wouldn't want to dance <laughs> we'll do, When the lockdown well. ends, we'll do one. You certainly wouldn't want to dance with this two left-footed idiot. You're not a dancer. <laughs> so going back again, so you got your band together, you had a huge... I mean, I can remember that. This is... I was a schoolgirl still before what happened to me happened. And I can remember I Can't Explain was like our anthem. It was like the best song ever. And and then how long was it before, you know, Pete started writing his rock operas like Tommy and all that? Was that in the late 60s or more in the 70s? I started the band right away back in 62. And then slowly but surely the members that became the final who joined. John Emp was our bass player, was the first one in. And then Pete Townsend, John brought Pete in. And they were obviously great musicians. I, I thought, well, this is, this is the root of a good band here. Mm. I wasn't the singer. I was, an, I was the lead guitarist at the time. Uh, and we had this kind of singer who thought he was Cliff Richard, um, as everybody did in those days. And that went on till 19, kind of late 1963, where we decided to, we saw, we supported Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, which was a three-piece oh, yeah. band yeah. and a singer. And we suddenly realised then we don't need a lead guitarist, but we do need a good singer. We just got bass player, lead guitarist, rhythm guitarist as one person and a great drummer. So I decided then to become a singer. Pete was the lead, lead rhythm guitarist. John Evans was on bass, but we could never find the right drummer until one day at the Oldfield Hotel in Greenford, this little bloke turned up in the front row in what I'd, I've always described, he looked like a gingerbread man because he, 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 he had very, very dark hair, black hair, and he, he bought hydrogen peroxide and decided that he wanted to be a beach boy and was going to be a beach, uh, you know, California blonde. <laughs> it came out bright orange, <laughs> and he had he had he had Wem, Wembley's version of a gold lame suit, which. <laughs> so he looked like this kind of gingerbread man, <laughs> and these great big round black eyes, this these great big moon eyes, and it was Keith Moon. And he said, I, I, I hear you're looking for a drummer and I can play much better than the guy you've got there. So can I have a go? So we, we had this session drummer working with us and I said, can, can this young kid have a go? Because he really did look like a kid. He looked about 12 years old. And we started playing Bo Diddley's Roadrunner. And kind of halfway through, it was almost like you'd put the key into the ignition of a, of a jet engine and started to fire it up. <laughs> He kind of doubled up the rhythms. All I know is that when Keith joined the band, it was quite obviously the final piece of a very important musical jigsaw. And it, and it just worked. And it, his rhythms are unlike anybody, any other drummer's rhythms, but they worked with our formula. Yeah. No, he was a great drummer. And he was manic on the drums. I used to love watching him on the drums. He was, he was brilliant. hysterical. I mean, he was, he was such a funny guy. I mean, he was... He was such a comedian, he, but and he, he but he did lack a lot of confidence in himself. He had such ability, um, oh, but again, he he became a victim of of the drugs and the drink, and of, you know we were so young, um, 
and the fame wasn't. It's not well. You know what fame is. Never. It's not easy to deal with. People who wish no. to be famous, especially at that young. I mean, like, like you. I was. I was. You would must have been what sixteen, seventeen. 18? We still are, but I mean, it's not, it's, it's weird. Though. I was it's 16. Just, you know, it I mean, was people like... that want to be famous, you say, well, why do you want to be famous? Because it's not, it isn't quite what you think it is, is it? <laughs> um, it's no, not it isn't. anything horrible, but equally, you have to be a tough kind of character to deal with it well. You do, you have to be strong. I mean, I was just very, very kind of insecure in myself and, and very green. I'm not, you we know, when were. you think of we, kids today. We were pardon? all very green. <laughs> we were. We were so, we, in a way, we were really innocent, weren't we, in that in that era? It was, yeah, well, we weren't Although then when the, dr the druggy bits kicked in, which I, I never got involved with because it just scared me to death and I knew my dad would tell me off. <laughs> so I would never got into that. But unfortunately, a lot of people did and it took a lot away. Well, that's where you and I are very similar because I, I was, I was the straight one in our mob. Yeah. You know, I was with three addicts, and I was, the, I was the straight guy, because I had to drive the van, I had to collect the money, I had to, you know, make sure everybody <laughs> got to the gig, I had to pull them out of bed. Uh, someone needed to do, to do that job if this group was ever going to make it, and and the rest of my life would have been a one-way ticket on the factory floor. Yeah. Be, you know, forever. So there was no doubt in my mind that this group was going to make it. <laughs> but in their minds, life was just one big party. Yeah, and, 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 and a lot in that world did party, and as we all know, they, they didn't make it, did they? So there's something to be said for being a bit kind of straight and old-fashioned, I suppose. It's, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy because I missed a lot of fun. You know, it, <laughs> I, I, that's the, the only thing I kind of... When I think back and people have asked me questions, anything you regret, it's not a regret, but if I could do it again, I would certainly try and enjoy it a lot more than I actually did. Because so much of the time I was concerned about things because of the state of the others. Mm, yeah. Too much on your young shoulders, really. Well, it felt that way yeah, at times. Yeah. When I started doing this, and I'd never done it before, it was just so lovely to get in touch with people I love, people that I haven't seen for a long time like you and just old friends. And and it just sit and have a chat and have a laugh. It's just, it's just helped me through lockdown, I have to say. I'm like you, one of the lucky ones. We live in a lovely house and we've got a lovely garden. And, you know, we, we've got each other and lots of people don't have that. So I feel very blessed on that that end of it. But, you know, it's it, doing these podcasts and, and talking to all my mates and friends, it's been absolutely joyous and it has helped. Because, uh, you know, the mental health aspect of what's been going on is huge, absolutely huge. Well, how, how, how people in, in high-rise flats with a couple of screaming kids uh, or teenagers being homeschooled, yeah. how they've done it, I don't know. I, I, we should have a day of applauding that lot. We really should. And I take my hat off to them because, uh, and the, you know, I hope you bring your kids through it well because I, I know by my grandchildren this has affected their mental health. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah. And I've, 
I talk to a lot of medical people to do with my charity work, and they are noticing, you know, ticks and things in, in teenagers behavioural I think that's the age group that I feel the most sorry for is is the kind of mid-teens because at that age you want to be with your friends or with your boyfriend girlfriend your mum and dad you know, can be a bit boring you want to be out and you know because little kids they're they're used to be I mean I've I've got a few little grandchildren but they're all under six yeah. and they miss their little friends but it's not but I think for teenagers it must have been it must be purgatory well, I think back to my teenage years, the last thing or the last place I wanted to be ever was at home. Yeah, exactly. From the age of 14, I was just yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah, you want to be out there. Well, well, look what you did as a teenager. I mean, can you imagine if this well, had hit then? I mean, anyway, we could go on about that. You did. You published your autobiography, what, in was it a couple of years ago? Thanks a lot, Mr Kibblewhite. Who was Mr Kibblewhite? He's my headmaster. Uh, uh, I went to a grammar school and he was my headmaster and um, I got expelled from the grammar school. I was a, you know, I was a very unruly pupil <laughs> and um, he was a good headmaster. He, he, he was, it wasn't his fault. It was my fault. I was, a, I was an unruly student and I was preventing other, other students from, from learning. So uh, <laughs> he got rid of me on my 15th birthday uh, wow. And as I walked out the door, he said to me, you'll never make anything of your life, Daughtry. And I, in the back of my head, I went, mm, <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> but now, but in the, my, I called the book, Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, because um, I mean, thank, thanks a lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, because if you hadn't have done that, hadn't kicked me out, yeah. hadn't even hadn't said that thing that riled me up so much, it, that gave me a, an extra kick in the butt that I needed. Yeah, that's interesting. So I do. I meant it as a as a real thank you. That's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I know because when my dad, when the whole thing happened to me, because I was sixteen, and I had I'd got a booking to go to Paris, I think, and um, my dad had to write. I went to a grammar school in in Kilburn. And my dad had to write to my headmistress and she wrote a really, or a bit like that, a really terrible thing to him, saying wow. what a stupid man he was and nothing will ever come of it. And, you know, it's, you know, I mean, she, she had her point, I suppose. It could have all been a flash in the pan. But, <laughs> but she was a bit rude. And then I found out many years later, she used to stand up in front of the whole school and talk about, two of her pupils who'd done brilliant things and I was one of them. <laughs> there you go. How they changed their minds. <laughs> no, but I was earlier I was saying, because you've done you've done a lot of acting. I knew a few of the things you'd done, but I just got a little biog of you. You've done lots. I did a lot of TV work in America. Mm. Um, and I had I had kind of little parts in series, you know, little uh, reoccurring parts like in Highlander and things like that, and, and I used to, I just do it because it, it was it was fun. I worked with good directors. I did some good work. I did some bad work, but then then reality TV kicked in, yeah. And I had a few offers in that direction, but I didn't want to be that kind of celebrity. I don't no, no. feel I it. I don't want to be that. You know, no. Uh, it, that's a whole that's a whole other thing. 
I noticed that the actual craft of, of, of filmmaking was changing rapidly and uh, becoming more just talking heads. And that's, that's not, I didn't want to be that kind of actor, you know, just delivering, you know, talking head here, talking head, head yeah. there. I don't know whether it was your first film, but you were with Ken Russell on Tommy, didn't you? That's Ken Russell Brilliant. on Tommy, yeah. I mean, what a great guy to work. I mean, once you've worked with someone of the talent of Ken Russell, Mm. it's kind of downhill from there, isn't it? It is. I didn't know I could do it. But Tommy I found very easy because it was all singing. But but when it came to Listomania, I was was a fish out of water. Plus that Ken had written the script. And Ken was not a script writer. (laughs) (laughs) So he was writing impossible lines to deliver and I was trying to do my best. That's so Um, funny. I should have just rewritten the script (laughs) in English and it might have worked. But but equally, there's some bits of Listomania that are absolutely brilliant. They're genius. There are, yeah. But as a film, it's certainly not boring. (laughs) No, I miss miss him a lot, actually. I mean, he he was eccentric he was but he was really an extraordinary man i feel very blessed that i actually got to work with him really now you did a new solo album what a couple of years ago as long as i have you wasn't it called yeah i wanted to revisit a period of my life when i was uh, where soul music was really big and um I I wanted to 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 go back and sing those songs that I you know in that vein that I used to love doing at the Marquee in the early days because the Who in those days used to do a lot of blues, lots of James Brown and Solomon Burke and all that kind of stuff, and I wanted to make an album of that kind of music just to sing in that style again. There's something about oh, I bet music that was that, really that fun, me. wasn't it? Pardon? I bet that was really fun. Really good fun. Um, the album did very, very well. I know it, it did. I, I don't like to do the same thing over and over again on records. I like to make the, the next record very, very different from the last one. A lot of yeah. a lot of artists, they kind of every album kind of is a is a is a follow on in the right. same vein. I I I like to switch and turn. Yeah, I, because you know you're an artist and you should be allowed. Yeah. you know to do. But it doesn't I mean, make it that... always a commercial thing, you know. Yeah. The biggest, the biggest success I had uh, recently was with, with um, an album I did with Wilco Johnson, uh, right. which was was hugely successful. And we made that for one reason only: he was diagnosed to be terminal with pancreatic oh. cancer. And I called him up immediately. I heard that he had this, and I said, you know, Wilkes, because we've been talking about doing an album, but we couldn't agree on the songs. But when I heard this, I called him up and said, Wilkes, let's just make a record. Let's just get in the studio, have fun, <laughs> and I'll record anything you want to record. I'll, I'll sing anything. I just wanted to take his mind on his journey, off his journey, you know, that oh, he was going to be so going lovely. through. And he had, they gave him a year to live, uh, and on about the, the, about the 10th month through the year, we managed to actually get into a studio. We didn't even have a record deal. We went into a studio for like two-week period. We spent a week getting the backing tracks and I did a week on the vocals and we threw this thing together and a record company came in and said, yeah, we, we love that and they they put it out there for us. It went to number one. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a fabulous record. It's made for the pure joy of making records, which is the reason yeah. we did it, just for exactly. joy of just making music. All the reasons you should make music. And it was hugely successful. And lovely that you did it for him. Well, it wasn't just, it was just, I wanted to do it for myself too, because I, but I just thought, you know, because I work with, with, with the Teenage Cancer Trust, I understand cancer very well, and I know the psychological journey that these youngsters have to go through. And I thought, well, Wilco's going to be going through this. He's got a year to live. They've given him a year to live. And, to, you know, pancreatic cancer back then, it's, it's not quite as bad now. They've got some new treatments coming out. But mm. back then, terminal was terminal. Yeah. So we recorded it in late November, early December. And then, of course, when you make a record, you don't ever think that you then have to go out and promote it, which we never considered. And they were going to release <laughs> this record in the in the March of the following year. And of course, they arranged all this promotion. And, and one of the things they arranged to do was was uh, was uh, front row on BBC Four, Radio Four, uh -huh. with John Wilson. And we got on this show. And of course, by now, Wilco's cancer, he looks like he's nine months pregnant with it. And, oh. he, he, and he was seriously ill. I mean, it was touch and go sometimes in the studio with him, to, whether he's going to pass out on us. And he was guessing oh. by then, and he's he got this, this great big lump that is huge. It looked like, like I say, he was pregnant. And, and John Wilson then says, well, you know, loved the album, really did, talked it up for us, which was great. Then he says to Wilco, so Wilco, there you are. He said, you're, you're over the year that they gave you to live. He said, you're one month over now. What do they say when you go back? And, of course, Wilco's answer, which was pure rock and roll, well, I never went back, did I? <laughs> and, you know, so you never heard so much laughter in all your life. There's Wilco on... <laughs> We we were just floored by the answer, oh, and, and it just so happened that listening into that radio show was an oncologist who's a huge fan of Wilco, and and thought, well, maybe he's been, been misdiagnosed. So he got hold of Wilco and invited him down to Addenbrooke's in in Cambridge, and um, Wilco went along and, and the doctor examined him and said, well. You, he said, I've got, got good news and bad news for you. He said, you, you've certainly got pancreatic cancer, but it's not on the inside of your pancreas. It's on the outside. Uh, oh. And the bad news is now it weighs about seven pounds. <laughs> and it's grown round your aorta. He said, no, I don't know. But he said, I'd like to have a go of removing it. But it's incredibly risky. Uh You've probably got a ten to fifteen percent chance of surviving, uh, but I'm happy to have a go if you wish. And of course, Wilco is been the last year thinking he's on a death sentence anyway. Wow. He's now being offered a fifteen percent chance of life. So to him, it's yeah. a it's a must do. Anyway, he went in and had it done, and it, it was touch and go there for a long time. He went through a really bumpy ride, but here he is today, cancer free. That is. Um, what a wonderful <laughs> you, story. You can't make that story up because if we hadn't have done the blooming radio show to promote the record, wow. he would have just gone on till he died. This thing would have killed him. It was just a matter of time. It would probably would have killed him, they reckon, within six, six to eight weeks after we did that show. But the fact that we did that show, he managed to get it removed and he lived. That is That's extraordinary. 
extraordinary. You couldn't you couldn't write that, could you? Nobody no. would believe it. That, oh, but that's such a lovely, lovely... And it's a great record. That is a really good record, it, that yeah, one. Yeah, it is. I'm really proud of that record. It it's just be. the spirit it's made in. It's, it comes, shines through. But I agree with you. It, people should be allowed to, you know, use their talent to do different kind of music. You know, not not just stick into one vein. You know, I, I mean, I, I haven't done it on the the level that you have, but I've done different albums that have been tied up because I love all the songs from the 30s and 40s as well. They, you know, all the Cold Porters and the Gershwins. And, but I also, my other great love is like country music. I love country music. What, the old time country? I like Appalachia country. But, oh, you know, people like Do Dolly Parton. Don't say a word against Dolly. Oh, no, you I love can't her. say a word against Dolly. Oh, I love her. <laughs> well, she's also a bloody good writer as well. Oh, she's a fabulous songwriter. Oh, amazing, amazing. But anyway, it's been so lovely. It took me a while to track you down, but I found you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it any time for you, Twix, any time. Thank you. And it's been lovely to talk to you too, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad. And congratulations on becoming Dame, because you oh, really, you. truly are a, a real... <laughs> you. If anything, anyone was a 60s icon, it was you. <laughs> It really oh, was. Well, thank you. You know. Thank you very much. And and you, and and you wear it well. Thank you. You wear it well. Um, I had a great day uh, with the family there, and um, it just made me laugh. But then I thought, well, Dame Twiggy sounds quite fun, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what if they make me a dame? <laughs> I think they should. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, now, everybody, everybody oh, that's the trouble. You accept one of these things, and everyone keeps, because I'm a CBE, people see I saying, know you are. But when, they, when are you going to get a knighthood? I don't know whether I want one. It's not like they're important <laughs> to you. At, you know, you don't think about it, do you? It's it's, it's an honour, and you, you accept it, because it is nice to be honoured. You can't pretend it isn't, but it's not something you crave, is it? I had no idea. They don't, they don't warn you. I just got a letter, and Lee thought it was a tax. <laughs> they couldn't get hold of me when I got mine. Oh, they said, we've been so trying funny. to find you. I said, so have I. <laughs> oh, well, it's been so lovely. Well, at the end, when we when we get out of this blooming lockdown... Let's get together. I'd love to see you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on for a chat. All right, darling. Lots and lots of love. Yeah, give my love to Lee. I all will. Right, all the best. Bye. Right, bye. <laughs> Oh, that was brilliant. Oh, God, it, Roger, really makes me laugh. Some of those stories, amazing. And he sang a song to me, which was very nice, giving it all away. Brilliant song. I really enjoyed chatting to him and hearing all his stories. Amazing. Lovely guy. Okay, I hope you enjoyed it too, and I'll see you soon. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. 
thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.